Welcome back to the mystery of the missing attention span. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Kids Brain Detectives. We've got part of the Kids Brain team today assembled to talk about something that, although it's not particularly interesting for the time, is really instrumental to parents' understanding of how best to advocate for their kids. So today it's me, Dr. Jennifer Morrison, and Katherine Harris, LA and LFSP. Sorry, Katherine. That's okay. Hello. Happy to be here. And Dr. Katie Caldwell. Hi, everybody. And these are the members of the Kids Brain team who are dual licensed. So we carry a, a license in a larger branch of psychology that is more clinically oriented. And then we are licensed at LSSPs, which is the Texas version of a school or educational psychologist. So we're going to talk a little bit about how those two areas of practice come together in regard to child assessment. So ladies, that what I'm wanting us to talk about today is what I think it is the two different languages that we speak. One is the clinical side, which is diagnosis based on the DSM or the ICD, depending on which ones that are more medical, clinical um, sets of criterion that drive diagnosis, which is what we do at the Kids Brain office, right? When we do an assessment. And then the second part of that equation is the educational side, where we are not talking about diagnosis. We're talking about eligibility for services, which although it sounds like these terms might be used interchangeably, they're actually not. So we're going to talk in regards specifically to ADHD today. There's a couple of other episodes. Feel free to dig around for those. It talks about the difference between services in school related to Section 504 plans versus special education plans. For this talk, we're going to assume kids with ADHD that need special education services and how the conversation on the clinical side differs slightly from the conversation on the educational side. So, Catherine, I was going to have you start. Tell me how a school psychologist makes a decision about whether attention problems may or may not be impacting a child in school when they're doing assessment. Sure. So the first thing that really any evaluator is going to consider is what the referral question was. So if attention was part of the reason the child came through for assessment, um, then a big part of that is going to be behavioral observations in the classroom. Um, ideally in a couple of different, maybe a structured and an unstructured time like recess or lunch. Um, a school psychologist would often do behavior rating scales to gather information about what the behavior looks like um, from parents and from teachers. Um, and, and, you know, you can look at if it looks symptomatic of ADHD, but in a school setting, um, that is not the diagnosis that's made. So we work in conjunction with um, a licensed physician in the state of Texas to determine eligibility for, which is under other health impairment and the broad category for ADHD falls. So kind of complicated. It is. So kind of the nutshell version of that is when a school psychologist or an LSSP here in the state of Texas has concerns that attention might be impacting a child educationally, they're observing from the outside and collaborating with that child's physician to see if they believe that something like ADHD may account for those difficulties. But a school psychologist 
in the state of Texas, at least, does not diagnose ADHD, right? So maybe if they do think ADHD might be present and they're reaching out to the doctor, does the pediatrician always just say, yes, I think it's ADHD and find the requisite forms? Or how does that play out in reality? Well, how I see it play out oftentimes, and I think this is the nature of what we do, is it, it is especially if, because in an earlier episode, we talked about how ADHD is often a rollout game and you're, you're doing a comprehensive evaluation to make sure that other things like language and hearing and mood are, are not contributing factors. Then the pediatrician has questions about maybe those other factors and can often reach out to a uh, clinical psychologist or an assessment specialist to do a comprehensive evaluation, and that's what kids are in. Okay, so if we're talking about giving this kind of a big loop, which is unfortunate. The school says they have some concerns for attention. The psychologist maybe does some assessment that says, I really am seeing some red flags with there being some potential attention issues. They refer it back to the parents and say, hey, you really need to talk to your physician about this. I kind of think this is the root of the problem. And then the physician at that point often may say, okay, there's some attention stuff, but we have to ruled everything else out. Is this something that um, we can really attribute to ADHD or might it be something else? And then that physician refers parents on for a more comprehensive evaluation that directly targets attention specifically, but also rules out other things. So, similar to the structure of um, the broad neuropsychological evaluations that we can see on a regular basis, we're going to make sure it's not other things. So, ruling out uh, major sleep deprived, kind of, kind of thinking or tired brain being the factors that come into play, making sure that there's not other medical things like maybe this child has difficulty with language or maybe they're having a hard time with hearing because they have the history of fluid in their group and so they can't follow through instructions because there's an auditory something or other that's going on. Maybe they're not sleeping well at night and they have sleep apnea and they're fatigued during the day and they can't think and process. Maybe it's a recent change or trauma. Maybe it's a learning difference that's causing them to be in a different environment. Could be could be another thing. Absolutely. So we're ruling out all of these things. And if we do arrive at diagnosis of ADHD as clinical psychologists and LPAs that are credentialed to do so, we will make a diagnosis of ADHD if it makes sense to us. Then it has to go back to the doctor to say to read the report and concur with our findings and sign the school district report um, documentation, which is called another health impairment form. So there's a number of moving parts that go into this process, which is often really, really confusing for parents because when specialized professionals like a school psychologist say, I really think ADHD is what's going on, it feels like that's the end of the conversation, but really it's the start of a longer process, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate mm -hmm. because we would really love these kids to get support faster, mm -hmm. which is where I would refer you on to our conversation about Section 504 plans versus special education services because there are provisions for kids that have attention problems to receive supports in school while this whole process is going on to potentially offer some additional uh, assistance while everyone is doing their piece to make sure we're not missing something. So the conversation about eligibility in the school district setting doesn't always translate to a clinical presentation. And there are times when 
you have a clinical diagnosis that then doesn't translate back into the school. So let's say we start in reverse and we have a child who comes to us through their parents for a clinical evaluation because they believe ADHD may be happening. And we do the evaluation, there are some attention or behavioral control concerns or both, and we make a clinical diagnosis of ADHD. Does that mean that they're eligible for services at school? Not always. So what would happen is the parents have the right to go to the school, request a meeting to um, consider an evaluation. And um, there are two components to special education eligibility. One is to have a disabling condition identified, and the other is to have an educational need for specialized instruction, not just accommodations, but specialized instruction. And so um, we see this happen a lot with older kids who maybe have got more coping skills or possibly are on medication and have their symptoms well managed or have a ton of support through tutors or coaches. Um, so a lot of those kids may have ADHD but don't necessarily need support through, through special education. So the educational need component is a little bit tricky because oftentimes this, it sounds like what we're talking about is rage and failing and not passing the star test, you know, metric or whatever. You can struggle at school a number of ways and it doesn't always show up in grades. Oftentimes what we find is that the waters get quite muddy when parents and coaches and tutors are providing a lot of scaffolding and support for a child, and they are doing well because of those things, which is a little bit dicey because ultimately what we would want is to see what this child's capabilities look like without those supports, but it's cruel to remove the supports that are allowing them to be successful. So navigating those waters and figuring out what to do in that sort of circumstance is something that we deal with often and usually in a, a consultative format. But ultimately what we're wanting to do is help translate the clinical side of what we do into the educational side and take the educational portion and translate it back into a clinical setting, whether it's for additional assessment or consultation or both, so that the two systems can match up and that we have the ability to help a child maximally in school and outside of school, which I think is a really cool like asset to have as a clinician to be both licensed on the clinical side and to have that knowledge on the educational side allows us to write a report that goes both ways mm -hmm. and to advocate in both directions, which I think is a really powerful way to team up with a band. Right, absolutely. And I think a lot of what we've been talking about today is special education, and I will say, uh, in the reverse situation where parents refer a child to our office first because they suspect ADHD and we go through the process and we confirm it, at the end of that, a 504 command is applicable regardless of whether or not the child will qualify for special education, correct? Yeah, that's a good clarification. Um, that's, yeah, you don't have to, the, the burden of need is different. And sometimes there are, while it's not ultimately up to us because we're not in the school with those children, um, often there are people who do well, which is a Bible program, which is accommodations. And so having us as the outside evaluator who can really look at what's going on and make targeted good accommodations, sometimes it's all that is truly needed to support that kid at school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you want, you know, one of the the legal ideas behind special education is least restrictive environment. And it's the idea that we want to give a child 
enough support so that they'll be able to progress and feel successful, but not so much that you are impeding their ability to, you know, like it's that balance. Um, and so that's the idea of, you know, selecting which route is best, you know, will my child be successful with maybe just extra time or, you know, an assignment versus needing a special education teacher to, um, you know, to review content for an extra 30 minutes a day. So, um, you know, what's the, what's the least? It's that balance. That's hard. Yeah. Well, ultimately what we're trying to do is support a child's ability to be independent. Right. Which means if you overdo support, you sound independence. If you underdo support, you leave gaps in skill set that prevent independence. And there's a sweet spot in there, to your point, that balance between the two. But often it's an ongoing collaborative process. And having somebody uh, be able to team up with a family that understands both worlds that their child is living within can be helpful so that we're able to navigate those waters and strike that perfect balance where this child is able to develop stronger skills, parents and teachers are able to meet them where they are and foster growth and dependent and then to be able to see that child progress developmentally to the point where they are maximally capable and thriving is ultimately the goal, which is kind of a cool thing to do. And we have the luxury of being able to float both sides of that. So um, hopefully this was informative as being a source of information for parents of children with ADHD regarding how the clinical side and the educational side work uh, in parallel with one another, but maybe don't always match up perfectly. And hopefully this has felt some of the confusion about being in both of those worlds, because it can be tricky sometimes. And it's, it's a lot of uh, law and technical jargon that makes it harder to understand. So hopefully this is a good starting place for figuring out what the assessment process looks like and, and what those steps may entail moving through that process. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I sure appreciate your time. Welcome to Quick and Easy Behavior Tips. This is Dr. Jennifer Morrison, and the tip of the day is called the speak and spin. This is a little strategy that I would recommend when you want to get something done, when you want your child to listen and follow directions, and you're trying to avoid a situation where there's back talk or an argument or some form of opening negotiation. Sometimes you just need something to get done. And when you have this agenda in mind, often we as parents lead with too much verbal information. At some point, my future kids are probably listening to this and they're laughing out loud because I'm literally the worst at giving too much verbal information when I make a request. So this is a strategy that I try very, very hard to use myself, although I'm not fantastic at it. For kids who are prone to negotiation, and mine both like to have the last word, oftentimes having too much verbal content opens the door for haggling and other attempts to avoid undesired activities. So to keep this as minimal as possible, as interference, so that your child can follow through with your request, what I would recommend is that you state what you need clearly and concisely. This is the speak part. While you are doing so, make sure that you're making eye contact with your child so that they know who you are talking to, and then turn away. This is the spin. So with a speak, with eye contact, and then the spin. And I'll give you an example. Let's say 
your son, Charlie, is supposed to be responsible for a specific chore and you need to remind Charlie to get things done, but you don't want to get into an argument with Charlie about whether or not this is a great time or whether or not that video game needs to be finished or whether or not something else should happen instead. So the example would be, Charlie, I need you to take out the trash now. There's no need to have a conversation beyond that. Make your statement, spin, and walk away. You don't have to convince him that this is a good idea. You don't have to give a rationale or wait around for their in- inevitable objection. Just watch, smile, and praise when your child begins to get started. So when you spin away, you're still monitoring. You're just disengaging so that your child knows we're not open for conversation and negotiation on this particular matter. You can use this frequently for things that you don't want to have a conversation about. But there are times that having discussion with your child about the importance of the task that you have assigned uh, will be necessary. But in this case, when you need something done and you want to work on the ability for a child to listen and follow through, don't stick around and allow an opportunity for an argument or discussion. Tell them what you want in a clear, concise way and spin, move on and watch how they start because the argument never happened in the first place. Hope this. Quick and easy behavior tip helps.